Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the center, the Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women, and I want to thank you all for coming today. Welcome to the March Conservative Women's Network Lunch. Special thank you to Heritage, to Bridget Wagner, who's been our partner in this uh, for uh, 20 years now. We do this once a month. March is Women's History Month, but in today's popular culture and mainstream media, you'll rarely hear about the great conservative women leaders in America in most Women's History Month events. We asked our CWN speakers today, both great conservative women, to talk about the history of the women's movement and how we as conservative women can combat radical feminism. First up will be Kelsey Bowler, who's the senior news producer at The Daily Signal, where she does on-camera interviews, podcasts, documentaries, and investigative reporting. She's also co-host of the weekly podcast, Problematic Women, and an editor of Bright, a morning newsletter for women by women. In addition to her work at the Daily Signal, Kelsey is a contributor to The Federalist, a visiting fellow with the Independent Women's Forum, and a senior fellow with the Steamboat Institute. She does frequent national TV appearances, including on Fox Business and Fox News. And previously, she worked at Fox News Channel in New York, where she was a production assistant there before writing and producing videos for Fox News Magazine, a lifestyle website. Kelsey graduated from Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania, with a double major, international affairs and film and media in politics. She grew up in Wilton, Connecticut, currently resides in Washington, D.C. with her new husband and her Australian shepherd, Utah. She ba balances her passion for politics with yoga, running a blog called Capital Yoga Girl. Our second speaker today is Inez Stepman, a senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum who's worked in education policy for seven years. Prior to joining IWF, Inez was the Director of Education and Workforce Development at the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC. She's the author of many policy papers, and her work in education policy has been published in many, many publications, such as the Washington Examiner, the Orange County Register, The Hill, and others. And she frequently testifies as an expert in state legislatures across the country. Inez is a senior contributor to The Federalist, where she writes on subjects ranging from feminism to fashion, and the Thursday editor of Bright, a woman's daily newsletter. Inez is a first-generation American, holds a BA in philosophy from the University of California, San Diego, and a JD from the University of Virginia School of Law. She lives with her husband, Puggle, and cat, Thaddeus... Mm. Oh, of course. Named after <laughs> the Polish hero. Ah, uh, Polish I heroes. Like how we both put our pets into the, the biography. I love it. I love it. Please join me in welcoming Kelsey and Inez today. Well, thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Bridget. And thank you to the Heritage Foundation for hosting. Uh, Inez and I have known each other for a couple years now. This is, I think, the first time we've ever gotten to do a panel together. So I'm honored to be here alongside her. Um, you know, and, and I think if you caught it from our bios, if you're not signed up for Bright yet, you probably are missing out. <laughs> um, but we're definitely in for an interesting discussion today. And I, um, we're going to do it a little free form where Inez and I are just going to go back and forth. And I thought we should probably start with uh, by addressing the elephant in the room between these two good friends right here. 
So I, as a conservative woman, um, believe we can and should reclaim the word feminism. We need to re-educate women on what it has meant throughout history, uh, the people involved, and redefine what it means today. Nez, on the other hand, strongly disagrees with me. Uh, she does not want to reclaim it, uh, and she's going to go into why. Um, and I think this is really an important discussion among conservatives, and it's encouraging from my perspective because it shows that our movement um, has enables and has space for diversity of thought. And at the end of the day, the most important takeaway, I think, is, is to point out that and as and I, when it comes down to the actual issues, agree on mostly everything. What we disagree on is nothing more than a label. Um, whether or not you want to reclaim the F word, <laughs> at the end of the day, it's just a label. <laughs> so I just want to put that out there. <laughs> um, so I guess we'll start in the now. Um, and and as and I will go through a few ways that we both think that you can um, we can combat radical feminism, whether that means using the word feminist or not. Um, so I I'm gonna go more into like the history of it and from my perspective in a bit. Um, but I think for starters, the conservative movement has a problem with reacting rather than being proactive. So in the, um, to take a recent example of Me Too, I thought we were very reactive rather than proactive. And I think it's frustrating to constantly see us having a voice, having an important voice in these movements. Um, but instead of leading the charge with our message, we're, we are responding. And the result of that is, um, I would, uh, I would bet that a lot of you are not happy with uh, the results of the Me Too movement. And a lot of you would probably agree that while it raised some important issues, it has gone too far. Um, the pendulum has swung too far in the opposite direction, which I think is, uh, you know, a, a, a trend that I see throughout the feminist movement in history where they start with good intentions and then those intentions get carried away. And the result is it hurts women. Um, I think Women are now being hurt by the Me Too movement. Um, you know, it's it's difficult for women now to be mentored by men in the workplace. That's hugely problematic. Um, dating, we're supposed to have these perfect little definitions of what consent means. That's really just impossible. This is such a gray area. And I think the left just ignores how complicated uh, these issues are and the nuance and instead... Um, uh, trades that to, you know, really virtue signal to the rest of us. And I think that has the effect, um, of, of, uh, sending a message to younger women that they're the ones fighting for them, not conservatives. Um, and I, that's what, that's my greatest fear and really, I guess, gets to the root of why I do think it's important to reclaim the word feminism from a communications perspective. Um, because I fear if we don't, um, younger generations are ultimately going to be brainwashed into thinking that conservative women are not fighting for them. Um, so thank you, first of all, Heritage, everybody here um, for, for attending this event. I think I agree with Kelsey completely uh, that this is an important topic for, um, for conservatives to talk about. Actually, I think as conservatives, we often focus far too much on the political um, and far too little on the cultural. Um, and, and I think that's an ongoing trend, um, unfortunately, in the conservative movement going all the way back to William F. Buckley and, and um, Ronald Reagan and, and all of this. And I think that's a large part of why we find ourselves here at this juncture where um, it seems like a large part of the country is unwilling to even acknowledge that there is such a thing as a man or a woman um, and that there are any meaningful or relevant distinctions between men and women. Um, but to, to combating this radical form of feminism, as Kelsey said, I think we'll get to, you know, where we disagree on the label um, in, in a little bit. Uh, but I think the number one thing we can do as conservative women is refuse to grant the premise that women in this country are victims, 
right? Um, women hold well over half the wealth. We're actually on track to hold two thirds of the wealth in this country. Um, we get the majority of degrees. We live longer. Uh, we start the majority of small businesses. And uh, in terms of political power, we make up 54% of the electorate on average in the last, you know, whatever it is, 10, 20 elections. I can't rem- remember the exact uh, number, but we, we make up consistent majority of those who are voting. So it's really, really difficult to argue in 2019 in the USA that women are disempowered or disenfranchised in any way whatsoever. So I think that's the first really important point. I think it's, it's important for the, for the right to stop the left in their tracks as soon as they go down this road of generalized female victimhood and say no. The, pull out the large picture in this country, not across the world, but in this country, is that we are the freest, most prosperous, um, and and really um, opportunity-laden generation of women, not just in American history, but in world history. Um, my little phone. I have my notes on my phone. <laughs> um, so I think the second large thing that we need to push back upon um, is the idea that this radical feminist voice actually represents either the the ideological beliefs of women at large um, or, in fact, their choices when they actually, when the, the rubber actually meets the road, it turns out that women don't make the choices that feminists would really like them to make. This is actually a consistent problem. I think we'll get back into the, the history in a minute. But this goes all the way back to Simone de Beauvoir in the 40s who lamented that, in fact, we would have to, government would have to prevent women from staying home with their children because otherwise too many women would make what she viewed as the wrong choice. Um, so I think that it's a really powerful tool that or argument that conservatives have in our arsenal to say, um, actually, you don't, not only do you not represent the ideological views of women, women tend to call themselves a third, a third, a third, a third identifies conservative, a third identifies moderate, a third is liberal, right? Not only do you left wing feminists not represent the voice of American women, um, but you don't even represent the choices that average women make. Um, you're actually aligning uh, yourself in opposition to those choices, whether those are choices about preferring to work part-time when we have young children in the home, or whether that's uh, as simple as the fact that anecdotal evidence would suggest that women are not actually huge fans of the Gillette man. They actually like a little bit of toxic masculinity in their men. Um <laughs> So third and connect- trigger people with that. <laughs> yeah, it might be. Sorry, the Heritage Foundation. Um, <laughs> no, so uh, I think the third and more important point is, is to emphasize the interconnectedness of women's destiny and men's destiny, right? Um, and, and I think this, the Kavanaugh hearings were really a watershed moment in a lot of ways for a lot of women in this country because it's when a lot of women who, who, some of them conservative, but others moderate and even on other topics progressive realize that the, the mainstream message from the left that it, they're getting from radical feminists is in some very fundamental sense anti-male or anti-man. And it turns out that we have husbands and sons and brothers and fathers and men in our lives who we love. And there were a lot of women in this country that watched the Kavanaugh hearings and imagined those men in love that they love sitting there being accused of a heinous crime without any kind of evidence. In fact, in the face of contrary evidence and risking not only losing a very important job promotion, uh, but, but the, his entire reputation. Um, built up over decades. And I think that that was really disturbing to a lot of women in this country and actually drove a 12-point enthusiasm bump among Republican women in the uh, midterm election. So those didn't go great for Republicans. They would have gone a lot worse had Republican women not become enthusiastic voters after watching the spectacle that was the Kavanaugh hearings and the specter um, of the the new feminist standard for assault, right, which is no due process, no evidence required, mere accusation, enough to ruin a man's life. Um, So I think those are the three most important ways that we can push back, right? Um, And so first, don't grant the premise that we're victims. Second, um, don't grant the premise that the feminist left actually reflects the choices of women in this country or their preferences politically. And third, um, 
remember that, you know, remember the men. I think Abigail Adams once uh, urged her husband to remember the ladies. I think that conservatives should now be urging um, urging their fellow sisters, right, uh, to remember the men um, and not and to push back against the increasingly anti-male, anti-man, anti-masculinity uh, tilt of both the left in general and and of feminism. I absolutely agree with everything Inez just said. And um, to continue off her point about not playing the victim card and buying into this really toxic and dangerous idea that women in the United States, the most freest country in the world, are victims, I think requires um, constantly reminding the left um, of, 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 of what women face internationally and constantly deciphering between the the difference between inequalities and injustices. So I certainly think in the United States today, women still face injustices. Um, those are things we need to talk about. Um, although I dis as, as I mentioned, I disagree with a lot of the repercussions of the Me Too movement. I think it brought to light a lot of injustices that women often face. But an, an injustice is very different than an inequality. And if you remind the left this, um, I think it will. I think it goes a, a long way to. Um, not just calling them out, but pointing out that we we care about women's well-being. But when we say that as conservatives, we say that not just for ourselves and, you know, us privileged Americans, to borrow their term. We're speaking on behalf of women worldwide because internationally, women don't have equality yet. They have a long way to go. And as the most privileged and freest women in the world, I think whether or not you identify as a feminist, as someone who supports women, we have an obligation to speak up for the actual inequalities and injustices that women are facing on a daily basis. Uh, just to name a few, um, internationally, it's estimated that 200 million in in girls, women and girls have undergone female genital mutilation. I'm sure a lot of you know what this is, but this carries long-term health repercussions, and it obviously takes away from intimate relationships that it seems like the left values so much. You would think maybe they care more about this. Um, in, in Egypt, for example, 87% of women aged 15 to 49 have been cut. 87%. Why don't we talk about that more? Um, in developing countries, uh, approximately 830 women are dying every day from preventable causes related to pregnancy and childbirth. Uh, I think we could do more to um, help them. So, um, yeah, that, that's that's one strategy I personally have in communicating um, about women's rights, um, pushing back on, on the idea that we don't have rights, that we're not equal, um, because, you know, when you put that into perspective, it kind of makes our complaints seem pretty silly and trivial. Um, is there anything you want to respond to that before we kick it off to more of the historical? Sure. Um, and and we'll, we'll get the uh, I agree with you completely, Kelsey, part out of the way in a minute. But, um, yes, I, I completely agree with you, Kelsey. There are real injustices being perpetuated against women um, around the globe, women who do not have their natural rights recognized. Um, and and there is a role for fighting for women's rights around the world. Um, and I, I, I think I completely agree that because we are so privileged here in the United States, we have a duty to speak up for those, for example, in Iran, the, the um, anti-hijab movement. Um, we have a duty to speak up for women's rights, especially in countries where speaking up for those rights for the women living there um, frequently comes with grave consequences or even death. So there is there is a role for this kind of, of um, sort of women's solidarity, let's say. Um, but I think where where I disagree is especially in, in, in the Western world, starting with the different waves of feminism. So um, Kelsey, why don't we... <laughs> All right, let's why get, don't to we get to the fun part. <laughs> the rock'em sock'em robot part. All right, um... I read I've read a couple interesting books on the history of the feminist movement lately. I brought my favorite um, just to suggest that you all read it. It is called Subverted: How I Helped uh, How I Helped the Sexual Revolution Hijack the Women's Movement by Sue Ellen Browder. She was a former uh, 
at, she was a former writer and contributor to Cosmopolitan among a, a bunch of different publications. Um, and, and she admits to writing fake news on behalf of the radical feminist movement. Um, she went through a huge life transformation. Um, and she was there to witness a lot of this history that I'm going to uh, mention firsthand. So if this is an issue uh, you're interested in, I highly recommend uh, picking up her book. So prior to the 1970s, the feminist movement and the sexual revolution were two very separate movements. Examples of what feminists fought for before they decided to make their movement all about abortion included achieving equality, uh, achieving equal opportunity for women in education in the workplace, deducting childcare expenses from your tax returns, the right to be educated, which um, you know, in the 1970s, uh, law and medical schools did not always admit women. The right for women to sit on a jury, women's right to get credit, and they fought for the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, which eventually passed in uh, 1978. So a lot of those issues, you know, conservatives might not agree 100% on, but we agree with the general premise, you know, women shouldn't be fired um, from their jobs for being pregnant. Um, you know, women deserve the right to vote <laughs> and so forth. Um, and and th that's why I really think there's been this revisionist history when it comes to the feminist movement, because today when you think about feminism historically, you just think it was all about abortion. But uh, here's the real backstory. So you probably think it's about abortion and that it was women leading the charge to fight abortion. Well, um, <laughs> well, men actually launched the entire movement to legalize abortion, and they basically conned feminists into supporting it. Um, a, a man by the name of Dr. Bernard Nathanson, uh, who actually, interestingly enough, later uh, apologized and repented for his sins, and Larry Ladder, who wrote a book called Breeding Ourselves to Death, um, really orchestrated the push for abortion behind the scenes. Um, Larry met Betty Friedan, who many of you know, author of the famous book, uh, The Feminist Mystique, and um, he also uh, was writing the biography of Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger. Interestingly, interesting side note, Sanger actually didn't fight for the right to abortion. She was too busy pushing for birth control and eugenics. <laughs> but uh, she didn't see it, she didn't see fighting for abortion as um, as something that would help her further what she believed in. Um, so Betty Friedan also never talked about abortion in that famous book, The Feminist Mystique. Um, and through uh, Larry's relationship with Margaret Sanger, um, he basically became obsessed with this idea of abortion and called pregnancy the ultimate punishment of sex. He idolized abortion as a way for men and women to enjoy the pleasure of sex for its own sake without having to worry about the consequence of children. Ladder knew he had to convince the feminists to get on board with abortion in order to sell it to the American people. Uh, and, and this, I, you know, at first Betty and many of the other feminists resisted this idea. They thought the feminist movement had to speak for women who wanted children. Because as I mentioned earlier, pregnancy discrimination in the workplace was a very real thing. In fact, Betty Friedan worked at a newspaper and she was fired for getting pregnant. Um, so eventually, uh, Larry Ladder was able to get some of the more radical feminists on board. He also convinced some of the liberal Catholics to get on board, and he also realized he'd need a few African-American women. It just kind of shows the extent of, um, of, of his orchestrating behind the scenes. It really rubs me the wrong way. <laughs> Um, and he, so he convinced Betty to put abortion on, um, the National Organization for Women's Platform, which now was the huge feminist organization at the time. And he convinced her that abortion will, quote, set you free. So this all comes down to this very infamous meeting at the Mayflower Hotel in a room called the Chinese Room. Um, as I mentioned, Sue Ellen Browder gets into the whole details on this meeting in her book. Um, but it was in 1967 where 105 members of NOW were, were present. 
And abortion was not on the agenda. It was not supposed to be voted for. It was more about these other ideas that I mentioned earlier. What happened is that radicals, radical feminists hijacked the meeting, forced a vote on, abor on abortion, and eventually passed it 57 to 14. Now, if you do the math, you'll see that's, that only adds up to 71 people. But at this meeting, there were 105 members of now present. So where did the rest go? Well, we know 14 voted against it, and the rest of them walked out. So when we think abortion was like this natural, innate part of the feminist movement, it wasn't. And the name of this, this talk is Combating Radical Feminists. It was a minority of radical feminists who hijacked the entire platform of this meeting to push abortion through at the hands of two men working behind the scenes who wanted to be able to have sex without consequences. So uh, this, this is what, this is, uh, what Browder writes of, of that meeting. At that very hour, shortly before midnight on November 18th, 1967, the once united women's movement split into two warring factions, feminists who favored legal abortion on demand versus feminists who opposed it. Some of the names of feminists who opposed it include some you'll recognize as Susan B. Anthony, Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell. Uh, actually, a couple of these, I'm not sure we're all at the meeting, but these are, in general, feminists who strongly opposed abortion. Elizabeth Cady Stratton, Stratton uh, Margaret Wall, Mary, uh, I'm going to mess up some of these names, <laughs> Wall, Wall, Wallstonecraft, and Alice Paul. Alice Paul was a Quaker who led peaceful protests to help women get the right to vote, strongly opposed abortion, called it the ultimate exploitation of women. So my point in explaining that story again, is to highlight the fact that the feminist movement was not always about abortion. It was a small minority of radical women who hijacked the movement to make that a part of their platform. It is still a part of their platform today. And that's why I think if we re-educate women on what the feminist movement stood for in the past, that's why I, I think, it, that's why I feel I, I can be at peace calling myself a feminist because I know there were feminists in there who walked out of that meeting who believe the same things that I do. So I think the problems with feminism go back a bit further than that 1967 meeting um, from the conservative perspective. Uh, I think – so if, if we talk about the traditional one through four waves, right, um, I think what's commonly called the first wave of feminism could more properly be called uh, a request for the extension of the American liberal tradition to women, right, Um and and I, I mentioned Abigail Adams earlier, right, writing to her husband, not to forget the ladies. Well, he did. Um, and and the, so in the early early American period, a lot of the rights that women were focused on on gaining were very very much in the Lockean liberal tradition. So, for example, the right to own property as a separate individual under the law. Um, so that was the, actually that was a huge part of what they were fighting for because early on a woman's entire um, legal identity was subhumed into her husband or earlier into her father and that made it impossible for women oftentimes to own property. It also made divorce extremely uh, legally difficult. You have to you used to have to get a actual grant from the legislature of the state, a special writ from the legislature to to divorce, um, and that's something that early early American women um, thought was inappropriate. Although again, I I personally I don't support no fault divorce, so I don't support the rever um, the the revisions to divorce law that were made in the 1970s. Um, nevertheless, it does seem excessive to ask somebody, for example, in an abusive marriage, to go to uh, door by door to the state legislature to get uh, permission then to divorce. Uh, so these were some of the early the early issues, and I would say that 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 kind of period of of women's um, I don't want to say feminist uh, movement, actually, because I, I dispute that characterization, but these sort of women's rights activists, at the latest, that period was concluded with the 19th Amendment and, and the right of the vote being granted being granted to women. Although, in fact, women were voting in this country from, from day one um, in state elections and some state elections, and um, oftentimes the, the women's vote was actually a, a – 
part of the the balance of power or the struggle of for power between larger states, smaller states, East Coast states, um, Western states, right? Western states had a disproportionate advantage because, of course, if you count only men and only men largely went West because in those early days it was so difficult, they were getting vastly more uh, sort of electoral power. Uh, that's when the East Coast states started to say, hey, maybe we need to give women the right to vote so we can outvote the West. Uh, so these things are always always a little more complicated than they seem uh, at first blush. But um, nevertheless, I would say this project, right, of, of extending the promises of the Declaration of Independence to women was basically concluded at the, the turn of the 20th century, right? Um, so then what is feminism since then, right? We mentioned Betty Friedan as kind of the founding mother of, of modern feminism in the United States. Um, she took a lot of her ideas from Simone de Beauvoir across the pond. Um, and, and I would argue that from, from the 1940s, um, the, the deeper underlying idea of feminism was, one, to separate sex from gender, and two, to argue that whatever biological differences exist between men and women, those, those biological differences are, are or should be irrelevant to the way that we construct society, policy, and culture. Um, the freedom, let's say, from, from biology. And, and there can be more conservative or liberal ways of looking at that, right? And certainly some of the, the women you mentioned who walked out of this meeting in 1967, they did not believe that the separate, they did believe in the separation of biological sex from societal uh, norms, but they didn't believe in abortion, for example. So it's not that you can't depart the train somewhere in various stops along the way, but I, I'm not sure that the fundamental premise of that separation and fundamentally saying that the differences between men and women um, are not or should not be relevant to the way that we construct societal norms um, is, in fact, conservative in any meaningful sense. Um, so when we talk about this project, right, when we're not just talking about law, I think equality under the law to the extent um, that, that in the way that the founders would have imagined it, I think that project was largely completed by, as I said, the, the early 20th century, although there there were some, some laws that came after that that I think were worthwhile. Um, but the cultural default and the societal default in terms of organizing society and work, um, family, policy, uh, the, the default has to be set somewhere. Uh, I'm not particularly enamored of or convinced by the libertarian argument that there can be no societal message, that everything is atomistic and individual and everybody makes their decisions in a vacuum. So I think there must be a societal default set somewhere, although it, of course, does not have to be coercive, right? And I think prior to the, the 1960s, in many ways, the default was set with what's probably something like 80 to 85% of women who do prefer to prioritize the personal over the public. They prioritize family over career. Um, and that's just one distinction, right? Um, and, and, and so that made it difficult for the 10, 15, 20% of women who really wanted to prioritize career, public office, political power. Um, so I'm not trying to say that there weren't difficulties for that percentage of women um, in the 1950s. But today, I think we've set the default in the opposite direction, where now the 80% of women who actually are happier um, pursuing what we might call more traditional ends um, and, and find those personal relationships to be much more important and meaningful in their lives than any career could ever be, um, the default today is set against them. The cultural messaging to girls has set against them, no, you can't want to be a mother or, or a wife when you grow up. You really need to think about what your career is. No, you shouldn't marry in your 20s. You should spend your 20s exploring yourself. How could you possibly be ready to marry um, unless you, you find yourself first in, in the various ways offered by the sexual revolution? Um, <laughs> and... and um, so, and I think what we see from all of this is actually what's called the, the, the paradox of declining female happiness. It turns out that women's happiness um, in, in surveys measured over time has been steadily declining since the early 1970s, right? Right around the, the time of the sexual revolution, um, 
women are less happy today than they were in the ostensibly um, very, very uh, oppressive 1950s. And by the way, the 1950s were less oppressive than many people think they were. Um, you gave your book recommendation. I'll give mine. Mona Charon's book. What, I can't remember what the it's sex, sex matters. Sex matters. I feel a little awkward reading it, but it's okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, on the subway. And um, so her book has a fantastic examination, not only of the underlying biological differences between men and women. By the way, there was a recent study that just came out that shows that sex differences in the brain, physical sex differences between men and women, develop in utero. Um, so. That kind of blows up the theory unless we're, we're, you know, culturally messaging children in the womb to tell them little girls prefer dolls. Um, it, it seems that there are real biological differences, meaningful biological differences between men and women. But, but, um, Mona Charon's book Sex Matters also lies, uh, lays out what I think is, it was a really eye-opening thing for me to read. Um, she actually goes back through women's magazines in the 1950s and shows that, in fact, there were profiles of women who wanted to be astronauts, profiles of women who um, wanted to be CEOs and business owners. Um, so it wasn't completely impossible for women to do those things um, in the 1950s, but the, the, it's fair to say that the cultural default was set against it. Um, now the cultural default is what I would call the eat, pray, love script. Um and, and it turns out that that's not really achieving a lot of happiness for men or women. So when I say I don't call myself a feminist, it's not because I don't believe that women have natural rights. Nobody, as far as I'm concerned, um, certainly today, but very few going back in history, for example, would argue that women don't have the right to the First Amendment. They don't have their freedom of speech, their freedom of religion. Um, and I think that project, though, was largely completed in the United States and across the West fairly early on. And what feminism has meant going forward is this continuous, um, you know, churn of trying to separate out what's biological, what's societal, instead of recognizing that these two things are intertwined, that these traditions have arisen for a reason, which is not, you know, doesn't mean that they're perfect and can't be, um, can't be improved over time. But a lot of these traditions and even stereotypes arose for a reason because men and women are fundamentally biologically different. They choose different life paths. And in fact, the freer and more prosperous they are, the more their choices diverge from men, right? The freer women are, the more different we are from men. Um, some of the, the countries with the smallest wage gaps in the world, for instance, are um, in war-torn Africa because they're... Everybody has to work to survive. There's no no consideration of, you know, family or career. No, everybody has to work to survive. And that was the condition of humanity for most of our existence. Um, now, because we are the freest, because we are the most prosperous, because we have incredible wealth built by capitalism in this country, um, we are free to choose to be more feminine, to be able to uh, make more feminine choices and to be able to um, live prosperous lives more in line with what women really want. Um, and so that's that's why I, I don't call myself a feminist. I will put one little button on this. I don't see the point of taking back a word that only 16 to 33% of American women actually identify with. So on a pure political basis, it doesn't seem to me worthwhile to chase a word that has such a negative connotation to two-thirds of the population. You know, I, uh, I'm i with you, Inez, to be honest. Uh, but I, the discussion is good, and we have it with uh, our students at Claire Booth Lewis a fair amount. And it's a good discussion because it forces us to dig down and see what these different things really mean. Um, I'm for letting the left have that one. And, uh, but uh, as I said, it's a good discussion. But I'm interested. We have a great audience here, a mix of uh, ages and uh, men and women. Let me ask, with a show of hands, I'm going to say first, how many of you want to try to save, how many of you want to keep, how many of you want to take back feminism as our word, as women, and how many want to let the left have it? So how okay. many How many women um, in this audience, and men, I guess, um, would identify as feminists? Of some stripe, right? Even of some an asterisk, yes. knowing you would have to explain what that means these days. Yeah, yeah. So I... Not radical feminism, not the, the feminism of the left, um, but but some stripe identify as some stripe as, as feminist. How many of you would not? So that's divided. Yeah, yeah that's it is divided. divided. That's that's what we find in the discussion, especially with students and and younger women. 
Um, what? Well, it's okay. <laughs> We're the Big Ten, you know. Um, before we get to questions, if I could just ask you to comment on one thing. One of the consequences of Me Too um, has been that um, quite a few left-wing men, especially in the media, um, have shown, been shown to be phony advocates for women in that they were condescending, they were disrespectful, they were abusive to women. Is that the good news part about Me Too? <laughs> the good news is there's so much hypocrisy on the left that it gives us endless amounts of content to write and talk about as conservatives. Um, I completely agree with it. I actually, since Inez mentioned uh, Mona Sharon's book, uh, I wrote down a quote. One of recent history's greatest scams was persuading women that offering men commitment-free sex was a victory for womankind. Obviously, it was the opposite. I, I would argue that second wave feminism is a, uh, or the Me Too movement is a direct result of second wave feminism. Um, it is, it has caused so many consequences for women. It has forced the majority of women, that 80% that you're talking about, to lie to themselves, to pretend that chasing, uh, sexual freedom is going to find them happiness to the point that if they choose to live a different life than that, um, they're, they're kind of shame to speak about. And I think it's the same thing that you were mentioning too, where, um, a lot of women want to work part time when they're raising kids and so forth. But now among my friends, it's like, if you want to say that you have to whisper it because it's not what society expects and demands of you. And I think that's hugely problematic to women's happiness as, as Inez pointed out. Absolutely. And, and I think, um, this Me Too moment, although there is nothing new about uh, men taking sexual advantage of women and abusing power to do so, nothing new at all. Um, that that has been perhaps since the dawn of humanity, um, an unfortunate consequence of of human nature and and uh, evil in the world. But I do think that this large confusion around Me Too and the idea of consent is absolutely a child of the sexual revolution. It turns out that there were sexual norms for a reason, uh, that, that sexual restraint uh, and the encouragement of sexual restraint in both men and women was there for a reason. Um, and it, it does seem to me that a large part of the, the, the crisis, for example, on campus um, – that it is showing itself in the Title IX crisis, in the Kavanaugh hearings, this kind of campus mentality of, of where, where, what exactly is consent? Um, what if you regret it afterwards? What if you're really, really drunk? Um, a large part of these questions were avoided by the previous rules of the road. Um, and in the 1960s and 70s, um, feminists, men and women thought that they could sexually liberate women by taking those guardrails off. Um, and, and what happened instead was that it turns out that in, in the free for all sexual game, women are more often the losers than men. Um, <laughs> it turns out that men are actually better suited <laughs> to the freewheeling sexual game than women on average. Um, and it's led to a lot of unhappy women, um, and, and women who have struggled to put into language that this culture around us can understand. Cause of course you can't just say, yeah, I wish that, you know, men were more chivalrous, that I wish they took me on a date. I wish they were a little more respectful. I wish that um, I wasn't expected to sleep with them um, right away or to compete with other women in that way. Um, those things are all verboten. They smack of judgment and, I mean, even worse, moral judgment. Um, so <laughs> those things are all forbidden, and I think women are now repackaging the disappointment and the pain that they feel in the sexual culture into the language of consent. Well, the law and the, the concept of consent cannot be stretched infinitely like that. And, and what we see is now the legal and, and um, personal consequences of trying to stretch the law. But I think, I think that comes from a real place of pain for a lot of women. It's just that our culture, our language doesn't give them any vocabulary in which to, to phrase it. It can't be that it was a mistake um, to be sexually promiscuous. So it must be that you didn't really want to have sex, that it was some an issue of consent. Um, so I, I think that's, that's part of the larger, you know, we let the genie out of the bottle in the, with the sexual revolution. And I think a large part of the Me Too movement is about trying to stuff the genie back in, in a way that's acceptable to the left. Yeah. 
We actually, before we go to questions, we actually have a beautiful little book on that, The Differences Between Men and Women When It Comes to Intimacy. And it's written by a doctor. There's no morality at all. It's scientific. It's medical. It's differences between our bodies and the way we react. If anybody's interested in that, see Elizabeth there. She has, she'll send you one of those. Let's go to Q&A. Uh, we have a few minutes here. If you would not mind uh, giving your name and affiliation. And uh, let me call on you. Uh, why don't we go here first? Um, hi, my name is Sharice Trump. I actually work at the Heritage Foundation in the Coalitions Department. Um, one of my biggest fears is rearing children in the current day, um, especially young boys. And I'm curious kind of what your advice would be to raising boys um, in probably the next few years, like in society today, what that would look like. What are the decisions you would make or you would recommend making um, for to make sure that our young boys aren't exposed or told at school that they can't behave a certain way um, just because they're boys or that they should think differently about themselves or identify differently because they're boys? I, I was going to say, in short, you know, I, I don't have children yet, but uh, I... I I'm a product of public school. Um, you know, I'm from Connecticut. I was very privileged to be able to attend a, a good public school where to, that it, it was so good to the point I questioned why anybody would pay for private school unless your kid had serious issues. Um, sadly, I have come to the opposite conclusion now where I think it's very unlikely I would send a uh, boy or girl to public school. I think there's way too many problems <laughs> in in public schools, um, and it's and I think you know school choice is really our way as conservatives to to fight back. So couldn't agree more with the school choice aspect. Um, I think actually, so we need to talk about school choice more in this way about worrying about the values that kids um, might be getting through the public schools that have been largely, I mean, captured by the progressive left in many key ways, including lessons about sexuality um, and, and, and many other ways. So uh, totally in agreement with that, I think. And again, we can only speak to it. Neither of us have kids. So this is a little awkward question for us. Um, but I, I would say this. I think we still need to teach men to be men. Um, if only because when you try to stuff that back inside of them, that seems to have very, very negative consequences. Um, and also because women, women will not like them if they are feminized. And that is a terrible thing, uh, to teach your son to be, um, to, to set him up for a lifetime of, of excruciating, uh, failure with the opposite sex is, is a cruel thing. Um, so I would say that it's still, still worthwhile despite the dangers, um, still worthwhile teaching boys to be men. Um, because that's the only way we're going to reverse this, right? So, and I raised, yeah. oh, sorry. I raised three sons, and I can tell you, you have to be careful of the private schools as well. Yes. I kept moving mine. I knew I was going to get this right, and I kept moving them and moving them and moving them. And uh, occasionally, there are public schools where the parents and the teachers tend to share similar values. That's how it was in the olden days when I was back in public school. It was never an issue because almost all of us shared the same values. So occasionally you can find government schools that way, but you've got to be careful of the private schools too. Okay, Bitsy, quick. A couple points to that end. In Sweden, they're importing men from overseas, especially from Latin countries, because the men have become so emasculated, the women are actually looking outside of Sweden to bring them in. In Kurdistan, on another point, the women in Kurdistan have actually achieved 50% political parity with the men, and they negotiated themselves. They didn't have government hand it. The women figured out how to negotiate 50% political parity, and you don't hear that from the feminism any, feminists anywhere. But to my main point, um, as Michelle knows, I'm one of the founders of the National Women's History Museum, and we, in fact, have had a battle within the... Uh, you know, the uh, history, the uh, culture of history in this country when it comes to women's history because the feminists want it to be about victimhood and we steadfastly have wanted to just spotlight women's achievements and it's a real war. We're coming up on the centennial of the women's right to vote and the, the war is going to be there again. They want to celebrate everything women don't have where we should be celebrating everything that we do and that's something that all conservative women need to worry about 
and look at in the next year is how to make sure that happens. And one last thing, Inez, were you named after Inez Mulholland by chance? My name's actually Inez, so no. <laughs> well, do you know who Inez Mulholland is? I've heard the name, but I, you're going to have to remind She's me. She's the woman on the white horse that you see in all the suffrage. Ba- um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. So I you should. Time. She's the only one to die during the uh, fight for the right to vote. A question back there? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, yes. Microphone. A child of the 60s, um, and having been in high school during the summer of love, I I can testify. Uh, And we weren't talking about abortion. We were talking about reproductive rights, which at that time meant birth control. It didn't mean abortion. But what I want all these young, and I'm sorry to do this because I know I'm supposed to ask a question, but I can't (laughs) can't help myself. To all these young women, what happened, what, what went down in the 60s was boys started coming to us and saying, well, let's have sex. Well, no, I don't want to. Well, but if you get pregnant, you can have an abortion. Come on, what's wrong with you? And that's how it went down. It was pressure from men that pushed that. And I admit, I was a little bit wilder than most and probably lived a different life than many, but that's what was going on in the late 60s and early 70s, and and that's not what you don't hear about. Thank you. Okay, in the back there, yes. Hi there, my name is Catherine Woodhouse. I work at the Heritage Foundation in IT, but um, I actually kind of just graduated from an all-women's college, Uh, so I have a very interesting perspective on this. Recently, what we have been uh, battling with is the redefinition of what a woman is. Um, so that's the inclusion of trans women on campus and trans men on campus. Um, so I guess just pushing this kind of question back on on y'all, what uh, what would you kind of recommend for uh, women like me who graduate, proud to graduate from a women's college because of all the, the fantastic education that I did gain from it, but also combating that, that idea of womanhood and how that is changing in institutions that are continually becoming hyper-liberalized. I, I think this is a natural extension. It's part of the reason that I, I cannot call myself a feminist, um, even though there are, in fact, of course, as I'm sure you know, the, the TERFs, the the trans-exclusionary radical feminist heritage had a panel um, just a month ago or so. Uh, strange, strange bedfellows these days. Um, so I think the separation of biological sex from gender was the first step in this, right? To separate biological sex from your expression of that sex in society Um was the first step in this. Now, again, there are lots of places along the train you can get off, and and clearly a lot of feminists have gotten off at this point in the train saying, okay, no, there is – biological sex may be irrelevant, but it's a reality, which I think is actually a tenuous argument to make, right? Um, either biological sex really does fundamentally matter in shaping our brains, our desires, our, our um, you know, our, our most – our, our, our personalities are, are, are everything, right? Um, either biological sex is a very powerful reality um, or it's just, you know, we have slightly different parts and, and there are no serious societal consequences that should come from that. And if you take that position, it's not clear that if you, you know, find a doctor to switch your parts that um, you aren't just like a woman, um, so I, I think it's not that there aren't objections along the way, and clearly there were in 1967, um, with abortion and, and now with, with trans, uh, with trans rights. Uh, I think there are some strong feminist objections, which were rooted in, in, you know, one saying there is a female experience and, and this isn't it. Um, and, and two, there are real safety concerns, right? Um, if we share all of our spaces, especially when you're talking about kids, like we're talking about the public schools, there are public schools in Florida, um, and actually a few different places now that, you know, if you may not even know if your six year old daughter is in a locker room with a, a biologically male kid. Um, so I, I mean, I, I think you raise a really important question. I think this actually, this trans question goes way beyond what we're talking about today about women, men, um, you know, relationships between the two. It's also a question of truth, right? Um, and we're seeing the ability to say two plus two equals four 
this is a man, this is a woman. We're seeing that erode in Canada. We're seeing it across the pond in the UK. Um, the actual criminalization in many cases of actually speaking the truth. So I think that that's, that's a whole other kettle of fish, but I, I think you're right to be concerned. I refuse to use the word gender when I mean sex. And I know a lot of people disagree with me on that, but sex is what you are. Gender is what you think you are. So I mostly use the word sex, but I really think that words matter. And the other side is masterful at taking words and pushing policy with words. So think about that before you say gender next time. Do you really mean gender, what people think they are, or do you mean sex, what they are? I don't know if you had a comment, Kelsey. No, I just, I think, you know, conservatives, we we can maybe do a better job of compassionately explaining to the other side how insulting it is to imply that women are defined by their body parts and by their appearance, um, because that's ultimately when you transition, it's all about your physical appearance. And as a woman, I I find that very insulting, Um, being a woman is so much inherently more complicated than that. Um, and, and that's why I think the groups like the radical feminists, and as mentioned, are important to include in this conversation um, because that's a point they really hit on, that if, if, if being a woman only means how you feel and how you look, then that degrades, I mean, that, that means there's no such thing as being a woman anymore. Okay, last question here. Can I just add one point to this? There's a tension within the feminist movement between whether there's anything essential about being female or feminine because they wanted to insist that there's no connection, right, between being a woman and being feminine. But then when we see men transitioning, what are they doing? They're wearing makeup. They're wearing tight dresses. They're emphasizing the female form, right? Um, And I thought that that the point of feminism was to get away from that in a fundamental sense. But there's, there, there's, a, real, there's a real tension there on the left. Okay, last question. Uh, Bonnie Wharton. I'm 72 years old, and uh, I can remember when um, being in the sixth grade when I had a little friend that said she wanted to be a doctor. And it was like, Really? You know, and it was not encouraged. I was one of those fired because I was pregnant. So I remember those days. But one thing that I I notice hasn't been mentioned is the impact that war has had on the development of women and their freedoms and, and the advancements, like the Vietnam War. Of course, my generation was immersed with the results of that. But that also played into the 70s. and the 70s, I'm not sure how we survived them, to tell you the truth. It was wild and woolly. And today, um, I think the older generation looks at, at things and thinks, man, how did we do that? But it is important, to, and it's strange to be sitting here uh, being talked about as history. It's a very strange thing. And, and I do think that gathering the older women such as as us right here is one of the foremost experts on the history of women and women and she's right the museum women need to understand you younger women need to understand the true history and how women had to fight for for everything, just not even having property, being able to own property, all these things. But if you don't know your history, you can't be centered and grounded in the battle. And that's what we're fighting right now. Thank you. And Thank you. I'm not a feminist but anymore. I was, but I, I tend to agree with Inez. I'd rather find a better word that we take. Okay, final comments, Inez and Kelsey? Um, I'll, I'll let you wrap it up. This is your home, um, daily signal. So I'll let you wrap it up, but, um, thank you for having me. Uh, these are important discussions. I think there's few things more fundamental than talking about human nature. And in this case, nature of men and the nature of women and how they're different. Um, and, and the fact that those differences have real consequences and you can't, you can't paper over those consequences. I think that's what we try to do with a sexual revolution and, and to imagine that women could be more like men and, and, um, 
I think that there are some real negative consequences to that. So to, to re-sum up my thesis, I think we've already in many ways allowed too much of feminist thinking into the right, um, into conservatism. And, and I think that there's not really, I, I think it would be negative for us to become merely the lagging train stop, right? There's a danger here of just becoming the last train stop. Um, where where the the we get off earlier on the train instead of going back to the route and saying no there's a, there's a real philosophical difference here, so I'll let Kelsey close. Well, thank you all for coming and spending an hour with us today. I, this is an important subject, and I, I hope we all recognize that and take the time to learn the history. Um, I specifically want to thank you three up here. Um, although you disagree with, you know, my my take on why we should reclaim the word feminism, it's 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 really because of women like you who have enabled women like me to not face the types of barriers that you have faced in in your home and in your career. And me calling myself a conservative feminism, I believe in a way is acknowledging what women like you did before me. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to the audience. Thank you for a wonderful presentation. I think we have a couple of little gifts for you before lunch. I'll give you the hair. <laughs> Daisy chains. Very fancy, nice paper and all that. Ooh, I'm going to wrap all my gifts in this oh from now on. Gosh. And these are from Claire Bluthloos. You. You know, we have a new name. It used to be Polly's Institute. Now it's Center for Conservative Women because that better reflects what we do. Little Thank bags you for so you. Much. Yeah. Can't ever have enough of them. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you all for coming. And Lily and uh, lunches. In the lobby right here. Thank you. Thank you. That was good. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed that.